0: Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm coming at you from my bookish bunker where around work and making sourdough starter... I'm finally finding time to hoe through bookshelf fillers like the seven volumes of Proust's In Search of Lost Time. And I have a packed show for you today. She's the author of speculative and science fiction novels From the Wreck and A Wrong Turn at the Office of Unmade Lists, a Kafkaesque novella, Formaldehyde, and a non-fiction book, The Handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change. Author Jane Rawson has thought about and written a lot about things going pear-shaped and how books might help people to navigate that. So it makes sense that Jane is one of a group bringing comfort to isolated readers with YouTube clips of authors reading other authors' work. The video series on Read Tasmania's YouTube channel is called Lockdown Reading Group. Jane will join me later in the show to talk about the group. She also cameos in today's comfort reads, so stay tuned for that. But soon, Ollie sees, hears and feels the world in colour. But when a chance meeting leads her to Mac and Maggie, her world sets sail on a course that opens her eyes and mind to a new way of looking at everything. That is, until a shocking event changes her world once more. Below the deck is at once a love letter to the ocean and a pointed examination of trauma and its complex legacy. And author Sophie Hardcastle joins me to discuss it later in the show. That's all coming up on Backstory. Of course, we'll be finishing up with comfort reads and meters for launch as well. Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app. Ollie sees, hears and feels the world in colour. But when a chance meeting leads her to Mac and Maggie she truly sets sail into a more expansive vision of her future. That is until a shocking event changes everything. Below Deck is at once a love letter to the ocean and a pointed examination of trauma and its complex legacy. It's a new novel by author Sophie Hardcastle. Sophie joined me on the line from Sydney recently to talk about her book and the difficult themes at its core. And just a content advisory: this discussion includes references to sexual and family violence. Sophie Hardcastle, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me. Now, your book, Below Deck, is a it's a really quite uh, lyrical read, uh, but it covers a lot of really quite challenging subject matter in an extremely accessible way I'd love you to talk about where this book has come from because it's a fascinating range of topics and uh and you know ways of rendering a very universal subject
2: yeah so I think first and foremost I wanted to write a book set at sea because my parents had been professional sailors and that was An environment and a space that felt very accessible to me um but then I think in terms of subject matter so I started I started thinking seriously about this book in 2017 when Me Too kind of exploded internationally and the thing that I was most interested in was kind of in 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 rape culture and the myths that sustain it I was wondering what would it be like if you put people in a situation where you couldn't a escape those myths and b sweep them under the rug. Um, and so I, I think I wrote below deck first as a response to that, um, as a way to sort of interrogate rape culture and victim shaming, um, and to do that in a space that completely exposed those, uh, the nuance of, 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 um, of those situations um and also to look at consent in a way that that was glaringly obvious um and so I wanted to take a very and that's something that might on land look watery um or where the borders aren't sharp where there's no clear cut right or wrong and to put it in a in a space on a boat in the middle of the ocean where you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything but confront those issues head-on and then I think the other thing that I really wanted to do and the other reason why I set set this book at sea was because ultimately I wanted to write a book about climate change and the climate crisis um, and our relationship with the ocean and our relationship with the natural world um, and that was yeah the site for me to talk about those issues
0: so can you introduce the the main sort of narrative drive of the book um where it sort of begins or sets sail if you like of course so my main character ollie and she's come from
2: kind of immense privilege Um, she's grown up in in asia with her father um working as the head of an oil company she's now relocated back to sydney where she was born she is um at university she's just finished her commerce degree she's living with her grandfather who's mourning the loss of his wife and she's kind of she's in a in a relationship with um another young guy that she was in her commerce degree with who's not particularly nice um and she she starts the book waking up um on a on a boat with no recollection of how she got there and this. What is a seemingly very frightening um, encounter turns out to be um, quite a harmless one. Um, She is on a boat with an old, crusty old sailor called Mac and meeting Mac and his best friend Maggie kind of sets her on a very new trajectory of um, pursuing a life at sea.
0: Yeah, and from this quite innocent encounter, though, you do set up some foreshadowing for a much more sinister encounter later on in the book, which really does form the crux of sort of, you know, highlighting the the effects of um, of sexual assault uh, on someone uh, in a way that that really I think um, shows it in in its full ambiguity as well as the full impact um, of that, and I. I I do feel like, you know, the setting that you've given it where I guess in a sense um, having it as a a kind of uh, completely sort of contained environment with all the fears that, that that holds, the sort of ocean all around and something going on that that is out of the, the main character's control really does kind of give you that immediate feeling that many, many women have experienced.
2: Yeah, it does. Um, do you mean with the... Sorry, my thought went back to the beginning um, because I think what, what that experience with Mac on the boat, waking up with no recollection of how she got there, um, I, is a feeling. I think that perhaps even if this, of, in most cases, the circumstances would be completely different. But I think that that fear um, is, yeah, as you said, something that that a lot of women, especially young women, would would it, it would resonate with. And I remember the kind of the reason why I set it up like that was I remember reading an article once um, that a woman wrote about the times that she was almost sexually assaulted, Um, and it kind of the result of this article is really um, taking the onus off the woman and and pinpointing the moments at which um, perpetrators or people that aren't perpetrators do or don't cross the line. And I think I wanted to kind of set up this um, scene where where you are quite fearful for Ollie and then have it turn out to be okay because the person that she's with is is not gonna is not a perpetrator of sexual violence, and he um, doesn't cross any lines. If that makes sense.
0: Absolutely, and I think what you have really nicely highlighted here as well is the real danger of. Um, people you know versus people you don't know uh which is you know often the the narrative that's been set up is this fear of of strangers as opposed to uh really the people we know being often the dangerous ones in many of these situations
2: absolutely i mean that was probably the myth that i was trying to debunk with this book um that's not to say that strangers are never a danger of course um, they are, but in almost eighty-five percent of cases, um, victims and survivors are known to their perpetrators. Um, and so th- that this idea of the lone wolf or this monster, kind of lurking in the alleyway, or this um, person at the periphery or at the, in the margins of society, I I wanted to kind of unveil a truth in that in most instances of sexual assault and sexual violence, um, perpetrators are known to the person that experiences this. And and I, and I wanted to make that real. And I remember writing, I, I wrote an article quite recently about um, how when you're at sea, the, this myth of the lone wolf attacker is kind of dragged up almost um like a fish on the end of a line you know and it's put onto the deck and it's in the cockpit and it's floundering and and, but in in broad daylight and utterly exposed this myth dies um because it, it it isn't the truth and it doesn't it doesn't speak to the vast majority of experiences of sexual assault
0: if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. am Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to also Sophie Hardcastle about her book, Below Deck. It's really uh, an, a really lovely sort of, um, you know, rendering of uh, of this young woman's relationship with the ocean, both uh, in her first feeling of coming home as she describes it, uh, as well as, I suppose, the fear that then is um that then develops uh, about that home as a result of an experience that she has. Um, I'd love you to talk about this element of the book.
2: Yeah, of course. So I think, I mean, I've always had this, I've always been in love with the ocean um, and I think it's a complicated relationship because the ocean is a body of water that has the potential to both liberate and drown you. Like it, it is... Um, something that you can find freedom and solace and all of these wonderful and nourishing things in, and at the same time, it 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 is a um, a body so huge and so vast and potentially so dangerous that you can die in this. Um, and so I find that tension really interesting. And I also, um, I guess, the way that that relates to Ollie in the story is, and to many um, survivors of sexual violence, is that your home and your body that you inhabit, um, you know, that, that tension kind of plays out in a similar way in that after an experience of sexual violence, sexual assault, it is very difficult, if not impossible, it can feel to inhabit your body afterwards. And so, so much of this book, I think is about the rebuild and about re you know, rebuilding the fleshy walls of your house so that you can inhabit your body and so that you can inhabit your home after, after something really traumatic has happened inside of it.
0: Yeah. there's there's other elements that you use to build the narrative that are really engaging because this is a story that you're really lulling the audience into. It's a, in many ways, a coming of age story. Uh, the character um, grows up throughout the the pages of the book uh, and experiences obviously a great trauma and loss throughout it. But you also really have these great moments of beauty and quite a sense of uh, you know of. Uh, You know, imagery that conjures up uh, color and movement, particularly because the central character has synesthesia. Can you talk about why you decided to use that as a device in the book?
2: Yeah, I can. So, I actually have synesthesia in the same way that Ollie does, Um, meaning I feel pain in color, I hear sound in color, and I have very strong color associations with people often because of the voice, sorry, the color that I hear their voice in. Um, and i i think i started writing this book through that um through that lens quite naturally um in that it is very much the way that i experience the world and i think so when i was um 23 when I, in 2017 i did an artist residency in antarctica and i kind of came back from antarctica with this like I felt as a changed person and I couldn't understand how I had been changed in such a profound way from a landscape and from a place. And so I spent a year just making paintings about Antarctica and I was listening to soundscapes that have been made in Antarctica, so um, soundscapes of wind and of glaciers carving um, where the ice is cracking off the front of a glacier. And I started making paintings of glaciers in the colours that I heard them breaking in. Um, and so I kind of examined the landscape and my experiences of the landscape for a year in through visual art. Um, and then, yeah, I guess like visually examined it. And then when I went to write the book, which was, I guess, an extension of that examination and of that interrogation, I – then, um, yeah, so very naturally started writing in that way. And then it wasn't until somebody started reading the manuscript, I, I had a tutor um, who was my supervisor at Oxford when I was writing the book. And he kind of, I mean, like immediately picked up on, on the way that I was writing and the way that Ollie was perceiving the world. And so he suggested that I actually use that or harness that and make her have synesthesia so that I could continue writing in that way.
0: Mm, And you have one of the central characters, Maggie, or one of the, you know, I guess, uh, characters that has a great impact on Ollie, uh, who is herself now not able to see, uh, but yet can because she has uh, synesthesia as well and and can hear colour, and can feel color and associates color with things like numbers. Uh, it's such an extraordinary way of of framing the world. I suppose when you have it naturally, it must just feel normal. But I love how you've described, for example, when Ollie first introduces her age, she talks about being twenty one uh, two is red, one is yellow, and it immediately made me think, what does that feel like to see? numbers for example
2: yeah um it's quite funny because i i never thought of it as a i just as an anomaly um it wasn't until i was at university studying at art school um that i was speaking about it i think we read about an artist who had synesthesia one of the surrealists and and it, that was the first time it was quite an interesting experience um of something that was my reality suddenly existing like outside of myself and realising that that reality wasn't universal and it wasn't
0: a norm. Does it have an impact on how you pick words? Yeah, it
2: it does. Um, I Yeah, I think maybe my um, – uh, I don't quite know how to – I've actually never – I've honestly never thought about that before. But, yeah, I think it does – And I think also I tend to have like quite a sense of um, the rhythm of the language, Um, and sometimes I'll put a word in that might not um, perhaps doesn't to to anyone else doesn't seem like the right word, but to me it just sits in the rhythm of my body correctly, and that's actually I actually find that more difficult to describe to somebody than any mm. any associations with color but I think so when I wrote Blozek um I was I was studying at Oxford and this was my research project and so I read the entire novel aloud to my tutor and that was an amazing way for me to hear the rhythm of my own prose um and and to hear very uh, obviously when it was working and when it wasn't
0: yeah I, I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the the kind of time on, on the boats that you describe. There's a number of journeys that Ollie takes um, throughout the course of this book. They ha- are different experiences each time. But what I was finding, and I suppose many people are experiencing this now because we're spending a lot of time indoors, we're spending a lot of time in enclosed spaces, sometimes alone, sometimes with others, uh, depending on who we are and what situation we found ourselves in, um, that I was feeling a great empathy for um, those experiences now, both in, in the kind of, you know, uh, that, that sort of close quarters nature of it and the strangeness of, of being in a, in a close space, in a, in a world where outside is, you know, is something you can just dip your toe into. Have you thought a little bit about that since you've been in lockdown?
2: Yeah, I have, and actually, being at sea is probably the closest experience I can think of that, like, to this and to being in isolation right now. Um, I, it, it's a very interesting thing I think when you are at sea. I, I, I spent time on yachts when I was younger um, because my parents were working on them, but then also when I was researching this book. I did an artist residency in Antarctica and then I did two yacht deliveries up the East coast of Australia um, with friends of my parents. And I think as you leave land, there's this feeling of the world kind of, or the sky almost wrapping down around the boat. And you feel like you're existing in this small pocket um, of time and experience where the boat becomes your entire world and I kind of feel that right now, um, in my house, I'm really fortunate that I'm living in a house with two friends, and that we're co, like, we're living together very cohesively. Um, and I can appreciate that that is not um, what everyone's experience of isolation right now. But but I am getting that same kind of feeling that you get when you're at sea, where this house now kind of feels like my world and, uh, and I'm, I'm having um, snippets of the outside world or beyond the borders of our house, you know, by talking to you tonight um, or FaceTiming friends or being in a Zoom meeting that, um, uh, you know, out, outside of that, it very much feels like we exist in this,
0: in a little bubble. You've been somewhat swept off course as well yourself, because you were—you've uh, been back in Australia for a book tour, and uh, now in Australia you remain. This is true. <laughs> I, yeah, I—I
2: I just saw a headline actually just before we started this interview that um, international travel might be held off until 2021. Uh, so I am very much living in Australia again. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to do with the logistics of all my belongings being in the UK um, but we'll see
0: it's a complicated time I, I do I, it it is something to to return to the serious um, topic right at its core it is really a book that does make everyone consider I think what home actually is for people especially those who aren't in safe situations um, and the fact that that's not always something that we can choose. Uh, It's a really um, you know, the creeping horror that happens when, you know, the central part of the book where you do feel as though uh, Ollie is entering into a dangerous situation uh, is one that many people find themselves in, um, unfortunately. Uh, It's it's something that we need to consider. Uh, Have you have you considered that um this notion of home um, and its perils and as well as its it's kind of sometimes false sense of safety. Yeah, definitely.
2: I and mean, that that was one thing that um, it how do I put this? So I think one one criticism that I've come up against with this book is um, is people asking why on earth Ollie would get on the boat that she gets on when she goes from New to Auckland. Um and I, I really wanted to put her in a situation where she has made a decision to be in that situation, because that is so much, so much of the time that is what victim shaming boils down to. Um, and so I, I yeah, I wanted to put her in a situation where she has done something that that um, people will jump at and say, well, there you go, there's the reason that this horrible thing happened to her um in order to show that um just just how flawed that argument is Mm -hmm. um you know that she she gets on a boat with um five men who she doesn't know very well it's sad that we still live in a time where um you would never question a young man getting on a boat with five women that he doesn't know in the same way um and yeah, I think I think that's a. I think
0: I, I it's think also, a yeah, it's a, it's a workplace. I mean, is the other thing as well as a home for that period of time. And I think this this idea that somehow, uh, you know, we have to a victim has to be responsible <laughs> for making that place safe uh, is is genuinely horrifying. That that is still a reaction that that we innately have is that, you know, that you can't make a choice. That is you know. Um, in her financial benefit, or is in um, is providing her with a place to live and a and you know a place to earn money, um, has to automatically be something that you need to worry about her safety in as well.
2: Absolutely, and that was the point that I was trying to make. You know, like any anyone that would jump at um, her decision to get on the boat and her decision to put herself in that space. I think that argument is so counterproductive. And I really wanted to write a book that um, exposes not only that argument, um, but exposes, yeah, I guess like um, the way that the situation unfolds, like we shouldn't have to move through life tailoring our every move or, you know, like shaping ourselves to fit in a particular mold. We should, should, and we should be moving towards a society in which women are safe to walk home without holding their knuckles or their keys in their knuckles, you know. And like, at what point will we shift the conversation from um, her decision to get on the boat to the decision of the men that feel entitled to her body?
0: Mm. I think this is definitely a book um, that uh, that reading in isolation adds to very much, uh, especially a thought of those who are maybe not uh, lucky enough to be in a safe situation uh, while contained with other people. I certainly hope this book finds many people are in a positive situation, but um, it is one that definitely makes people think about uh, what is very likely the case for for many people.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I hope I hope that this this book, like I think primarily and fundamentally, is about the rebuild and about showing that it is possible to reclaim your body and to inhabit your body and your home and to feel safe in it, even after you've been violated. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would hope that, um, as traumatic as some of the scenes are, that it also is about a, a book about um, the reclaiming the body and about yeah, feeling home again
0: absolutely well sophia hardcastle thank you so much for coming on backstory today to talk to me about um this really quite lyrically written and and really beautiful book uh thank you mm, thank you so much that was sophie hardcastle author of below deck out now through alan and unwin and if you or anyone you know has been affected by themes covered in today's segment, please call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 or Lifeline on 13 Coming up soon, author Jane Rawson brings authors and the books they love to us with the Lockdown Reading Room, followed by this week's Comfort Reads and Meet Us for Launch segments. That's all coming up on Backstory.
1: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform.
0: You're listening to Triple R. The show is backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. She's the author of speculative and science fiction novels, From the Wreck, and A Wrong Turn at the Office of Unmade Lists, a Kafkaesque novella, Formaldehyde, and a non-fiction work, The Handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change. Yes, Jane Rawson has thought of and written a lot about what might happen when things go wrong, and ways of reimagining the world the kind of literary response that helps us think about creative ways to deal with unfathomable problems. So it makes a lot of sense that Jane is one of a group bringing comfort to isolated readers with YouTube clips of authors reading other authors. It's all part of a new group, the Lockdown Reading Group, and Jane joined me to talk about the group and what inspired it. Jane Rawson, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. Now, you've started this uh, incredible reading group with a couple of friends uh, who are also uh, interested in trying to bide their time in uh, lockdown by doing something that both helps authors and helps uh, all of those would-be readers out there. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about the lockdown reading group.
1: For sure. Um, Lockdown Reading Group started about a month ago when Harry Sadler, who's a nonfiction author, he wrote a great book called The Eastern Curlew, put a little post up on Twitter saying, wouldn't it be lovely in these difficult times to have someone read you a story? Um, What do you think about the idea of recording a story and putting it online and we could all listen and one of us would read another story? And he got so many responses from people who were both Keen to listen, but also heaps of people who are really keen to read. Um, And one of the people who saw that post was Kate Harrison, who started an organization called Read Tasmania with me, uh, where we promote reading, I guess, in Tasmania and the enjoyment of stories and books. And Kate was really keen to be involved, so she roped me in as well. And the three of us since then have been essentially getting together a project where we look for recent Australian releases or books that are about to be released and we read sections from them and we put them up on the internet and share them with other people. That's basically the premise of it. Listen to somebody, read you a story. Um, But we did face problems pretty early on when we realized that if we did this, we'd be breaking copyright. So that was a little bit tricky.
0: Uh, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that because it's sort of a really, it's one of those things that sounds quite simple, doesn't it? Like a bunch of people getting together to read books that they love uh, and share them on the internet. Can you talk a little bit about some of those kind of copyright concerns?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is, this is why it's good to have someone like me who thinks everything is going to be a disaster involved. Uh, I was straight away like, ah, guys, I don't know if we can actually do that. Uh, I think it might be a problem. So I got in contact with, um, a literary copyright lawyer who I know who was on Twitter, who had seen the conversation going on. And she said to me, oh yeah, you definitely can't do that. But I didn't want to be the person who came online and was like, you're not allowed to do that. So I'm glad you asked. Um, So it turns out, yeah, essentially authors often don't own the rights to their work. They've handed it over to their publisher and the publisher may then have passed on the audio rights, which is what we wanted to somebody else. So in some cases it's been a little bit complicated, but because what we're trying to do is um, give some promotion to books that are missing out at a really important time in their little fresh new lives, most publishers were super keen to help us out and figure out how to make it work and we've had pretty close to 100% success with, with getting permission to, to read these stories online, which has been really great. Publishers have been so good and helpful.
0: Can we talk a bit about the experience of uh, being read to? Because it's one of my all-time favourite things. Uh, it immediately takes me back to sort of bedtime stories, or those, those classroom reading circles that we had uh, when I was growing up, which I've always found enormously uh, comforting. Uh, now is one of those times when, when we need that comfort. Is that something that you have also experienced?
1: Yeah. And and you're right. That's one one of the main reasons we wanted to do it. It wasn't just the promotional thing. It was as much or more so that we wanted to offer something comforting and lovely to people who are struggling. And being read to is one of the loveliest things that there is. I think one of my fondest memories of being at primary school is of having the teacher or having us all there sitting on the floor and her reading The Hobbit to us and me not that interested in the Hobbit, but having the girl behind me doing my hair while I listen to the story. And it was such um, such a wonderful sensory experience, the whole thing, hearing the story, having someone plait my hair, that I think ever since then I've loved to be read to. And it's pretty hard for most grown-ups to find someone who'll read to them. Most of them spend ages reading to other people, to little people, but they never they never really pay you back, I don't think.
0: No, it's really fair enough. And and there is something, it's a really interesting way that you put it, that whole kind of visceral experience of being read to is that it's not, it's not even just about the story. It's, you know, the cadences of a person's voice and, you know, the fact that they're sort of sharing these words with you. Sometimes it's even just the sound of the words that I get lost in uh, when I'm listening to a book, even if the story is not necessarily the thing that's That's gripping for me. Have you, did you, do you feel like when you listen to a book being read, you find different things as well to appreciate in it? Oh,
1: definitely. And I think it's been really interesting having such a range of readers in this project because we've had some authors who want to read their own book, other authors who really don't want to, and they're happy to have somebody else, a complete stranger, read it for them. And the diversity of those readers, some of them are, you know, trained voice reading type people and others are just reading for the first time and they all bring something completely different to the experience um, and yeah hearing hearing books read aloud in some ways i think it's it's nicer this way than listening to an audiobook uh even though you should definitely download the audiobooks of every one of the stories that you've listened to on lockdown reading group it is kind of lovely listening to non professionals read it has a much cozier feeling i think
0: but you're also getting to see the, the people read.
1: Yeah, that's these right. Um, they're, they're all videoed. Uh, so you can, if you want, you can, you know, lie back and close your eyes and just listen or you can watch them as well. And some of them are really animated. Um, ben Walter read one of his stories for us the other night and his reading is just great. It's a complete performance. It's really worth watching. Um, and we had last night's reading was from a comic artist, Joshua Spirito, who had his drawings up as well as reading them. So, yeah, that was was an all-round experience.
0: If you've just joined us, I'm talking to author Jane Rawson, who is one of the three founders of the Lockdown Reading Group, along with Harry Sadler and Kate Harrison. Um, Jane, I I think it's a really amazing thing that's emerged since we've all been in lockdown, which is that there's been a lot of things organised across national and international boundaries. You're over there in Tasmania, you're teaming up with authors who live in other states. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what the feeling of that is right now?
1: not just other states too. Uh, Cassandra Austin read us something from Los Angeles. She's an Australian author, but that's where she lives these days. So yeah, that was really great to have her reading from Anna Korean's latest novel. Um, was It was excellent. It was a great feeling to know someone on the other side of the world was staying up late for me and, and doing this work. Um, yeah, it's it's been really helpful to me. I think even if nobody ever watched the videos selfishly, this would be completely worthwhile for me. It's been such a lovely experience to, to have all these people who care about books and reading and want to help each other out. Um, but even just to, you know, have something to organize because it's easy to feel at the moment, like there's nothing I can do and it's so massive and I'm so helpless and everything's terrible. Um, even just a little thing like this to know that it might be helping a few people, but at least it's you know keeping you busy is is really great. I think.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking quite a bit about you and your books, Jane Rawson, since I've been in uh, in lockdown. Not in a creepy way, but in a, <laughs> like, you know, like you write speculative fiction that's very much preoccupied with kind of post apocalyptic themes, particularly uh, climate change related themes. And I have been wondering uh, what. You've been thinking now that you found yourself in a world not unlike um, the early premise of some of your books.
1: Yeah, it's a lot more isolated than anything in my books, I think. Um, But I guess like I was talking to my mum early on in this process and she was like, "I, I can't believe this is happening. It's all so unreal. It's so strange. And I kind of had to think about what my response was. And mine was like, well, no, it doesn't actually feel that strange to me. I guess I've been thinking about these kinds of things, of all the various ways things can go wrong for, I don't know, at least 10 years now, maybe 15 while I've been writing fiction. Um, and because I've been so concerned with climate change and ecocide for for quite a while now, it, the, the idea of systems collapsing is, you know, something that has preoccupied me for quite a while. So, yeah, I guess while this is weird, it doesn't feel unexpectedly weird to me, I
0: guess. Well, you're the co-author of the handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change as well, which uh, I'm wondering is there anything that you you thought about while writing that or co-writing that book?
1: Yeah, (laughs) and I think in some ways writing that book made me slightly too panicky about all of this. My initial reactions were very much like, all right, how do we prepare? This is happening. It's all happening. Um, I think I'm feeling slightly more relaxed about it now, even as Tasmania is turning out to be not the best place to be in Australia right now. Um, but yeah, I, I guess a lot of the stuff that we had in the handbook was about preparing for disasters more generally and is about, you know, how to stay calm, how to stay sane, how to deal with a crisis. As well as sort of more practical stuff like what's it good to have in your cupboard, and I definitely went to our food preparation list when everyone was panic buying things, and went, "Oh, you guys are buying all the wrong things." (laughs) You know, that was (laughs)
0: satisfying. Well, I'm definitely coming through my copy of your book as well because it, it is uh, a surprisingly useful handbook. Um, for now, if only also because it, it gives you this feeling that this is not an outside of the the realm of of the expected type of experience.
1: I guess the thing that scares me most about this is not so much this actual pandemic lockdown experience but the fact that it's going to be part of a rolling sequence of events for probably the rest of my life um yeah and you know how how will we cope as those things start coming back to back and overlapping one another
0: yeah anyway i do want to talk about one of your other books actually at at this juncture i've thought about um a wrong term at the office of unmade lists a little bit you know i remember thinking at the time that you know, in terms of kind of post-apocalyptic books, there was a great hopefulness to that, that actually uh, humans are quite accepting of the new situations that they find themselves in. I mean, it's both a a wonderful trait and a dangerous one, because obviously it means that we don't necessarily change the status quo in time to prevent disasters, but we do tend to find humanity uh, wherever we land as well. Uh, So, you know, I guess, this, I, I've thought about it in the context of where we find ourselves now, that people are trying to make the best of a situation. And and obviously, I'm in a, a fairly privileged subset, as as are most people I know, in that that we're relatively comfortable even in the midst of all of this. Many people are not, uh, obviously. So, I mean, do you feel as though there is hope for humanity, regardless of, of where we find ourselves? Or do you think that we really have to consider that there are going to be great and devastating losses that we have to try and navigate.
1: Both things, um, yeah. I guess the thing before before we had this pandemic, um, one of the things that worried me most about climate change was I felt like, and you know, this isn't new. This is not my original thought. But one of the things that would help us the most to navigate through that was to form stronger on-the-ground communities. We're all pretty good at forming online communities and I think that's great, but we also need to have real-life connections to the place that we are and to the people who are around us if we're going to organise to solve this. Um, and it seemed like a thing that was largely impossible, particularly for those of us, you know, who, who've who lived in inner-city areas for most of our lives. And I don't have that sort of, you know, rural thing of knowing your neighbours. But I think the thing that gave me hope as this pandemic took off was the number of people who were making that effort to get to know their neighbours and to help their neighbours and find out what they needed. And that seems to be continuing. There are plenty of tales of things that have gone terribly wrong. But I think that that feeling of Asking yourself, what can I do, how can I help, who are the people around me, how can I be there for them is something that I think will stand us in really good stead as we move into the future, as we have to deal with continuing crises. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've been a strong advocate for reading fiction at this time, even more than watching the news in some ways. like I think it's important to stay up to date with what it is that you need to know. But I think in terms of ideas, we're better served in some ways by by going to fiction and and looking into the mind of someone who's really sat down and thought about things than we are to have kind of um, off-the-cuff debates um, that are quite unreconstructed and um, maybe ill-thought-out. Have you considered similar things? I mean, obviously, with your your reading group, uh, it does feel like not only are you supporting local writers, but you're supporting local ideas as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, the stories have ranged. You know, we have some some very uh, apropos stories, if you will. Laura Jean Mackay's *The Animals in That Country*, which has just come out, is about a plague um, and. But as well as that, we have, you know, stories that are about marriages going wrong and all those kinds of things. But I think the thing that brings all of fiction together is that ability to use your imagination and to conceive of different ways of being um, and of people who are different to yourself and of different ways of of organising your life and your relationships. Um, And, yeah, I guess a thing I keep wanting to to like tweet or do something else similarly useless with is the idea that all of this have gone quite so badly perhaps if more people who are in power read more fiction and thought more imaginatively and considered more options and thought about how things could be completely different to the way that they are now either intentionally or unintentionally um and I guess yeah, I, I feel like the important thing about reading fiction at the moment is to help expand our imaginations to think about what, what do we want things to be like on the other side of this, what kind of a world do we want to build out of this. Things will change um, and we, we need to be ready to chip in with our version of how we want the world to be.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a great place to to leave this discussion, uh, Jane Rawson. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Where can people go to see some of the lockdown reading group, uh, uh, you know, entries and readings?
1: Yeah, uh, they're all on the Read Tasmania YouTube channel. Uh, so if you go to YouTube and search for Read Tasmania, that should put you in the right place. Um, yeah, we've got a whole bunch of them on there now. I've lost count, but you know, it looks like that we're we're up near twenty now, I think. And we've got plenty more in the pipelines. We're we're hoping to keep going for a while yet. And most of them will stay up there for quite a while. A few will have to take down because of the contracts we have. Um, but yeah, the, there's there's a lot of really good stuff, no matter what kind of fiction you like. And we will have some nonfiction at some point too, and hopefully some poetry.
0: That's great, uh, Jane Wilson. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure. That was Jane Rawson, author and co founder of the Lockdown Reading Group. And you'll find all the Lockdown Reading Group videos on the Read Tasmania YouTube channel. Welcome to your bunker, baby. Yes. That's right, it's time for comfort reads and meet us for launch. And now, a familiar voice will introduce her comfort read.
1: Hi, I'm Jane Rawson and I'm going to talk about one of my comfort reads. Um, At the moment, as you all know, we're in the middle of a crisis and for me, I think the kinds of things that I like to read at times of difficulty like this are not necessarily things that sweep me away to a kinder time or even things that help me prepare for a worse time. But they're works of extreme imagination, works of high allegory works that um, reset your brain and help you to think about things differently. I think it's really easy to get into a rut when things are scary um, and when you feel like you have to prepare yourself for the worst You can dig yourself into a real hole of just thinking about the same things in the same ways. So to expand my mind, um, lately I've been reading some Franz Kafka. Uh, Kafka is not a cheery read, probably not what everyone would pick for a comfort read, but uh, his story, A Hunger Artist, is such an interesting work about art and what art is for and Myself as a writer who often writes about times of crisis and writes about difficult things, it's, it's really interesting to read another writer who has thought about these kinds of issues and who doesn't come up with the same old boring things about how, you know, the role of art is to bear witness to things or the role of art is to change minds or give us strength, but who has bigger and broader ideas. So, yeah, Franz Kafka's a Hunker Artist is my comfort read.
0: That was Jane Rawson talking about her comfort read, Franz Kafka's The Hunger Artist. And today on Meters for Launch, Thrill Me, Suspenseful Stories, edited by Lynette Washington. This collection brims with anticipation, humour, desire and strangeness, with stories that quicken your senses and make your spine tingle. In Thrill Me, 31 award-winning and emerging Australian storytellers write to thrill and move you. Read on if you dare. Authors include Tamiko Aguile, Joanna Beresford, Carmel Bird, Ben Brooker, Lauren Butterworth, Elaine Kane, Brid Cummings, Kate Shelley Gilbert, Ashley Hardcastle, Elise Jackson, Michelle Yeager and many, many more. Out now through independent South Australian publisher Wakefield Press. If you want to send me your comfort read or let me know about your book for Meet Me for Launch... Email me on backstoryrr at gmail.com. That's r at gmail.com. And one last thing, congratulations to Jess Hill, winner of the Stella Prize, for her gut-wrenching and necessary work of investigative journalism, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. You can watch the Stella Prize announcement and Jess Hill's urgent rallying acceptance speech on the Wheeler Centre website. That's it for Backstory this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Sophie Hardcastle, author of Below Deck, and Jane Rawson, co-founder of Lockdown Reading Group, up now on Read Tasmania's YouTube channel. Today's Meet Me for Launch was Lynette Washington, editor of Thrill Me, Suspenseful Stories, out now through Wakefield Press. And our segment theme, Welcome to the Bunker Baby, is by singer-songwriter Nicola Watson, Her album is out now on Bandcamp.
2: Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.
0: Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.